0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Salt Talks. My name is Rachel Pether and I'm a senior advisor to Skybridge Capital, based in Abu Dhabi, as well as being the MC for Salt, which is a thought leadership forum and networking platform that encompasses business, technology, and politics. Now, Salt Talks, as many of you know, is a series of digital interviews with some of the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. And just as we do at our global salt events. We try to empower really big, important ideas and provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts. Today's focus will not be on the U.S. election, and as our producer Joe said, you can think of this as a bit of a palate cleanser from the news of the last few days. But we will be focusing on pension funds, sustainable investing, and partnerships. And I'm very excited to be joined by a dear friend of mine, Gert Dijkstra. Gert is a Senior Managing Director at APG Asset Management, which is one of the world's largest pension investors. He's been with them for over 12 years, and he was a member of the board from 2010 to 2017. He was previously with ABP, which is the pension fund for government and education employees in the Netherlands. Gert studied business management at the University of Groningen, and does further education at INSEAD and Harvard Business School. He's also a frequent speaker at high-profile events globally. As always, if you have any questions for Gert, please just enter them in the Q&A section of your Zoom screen. Gert, welcome to Salt Talks. Thanks. Now, tell me a bit about your background. You're obviously Dutch, uh, and you have a very unpronounceable name, so I apologize if I did not get that correct. But tell me a bit about your personal background and what
1: took you into the world of pension fund investing? Yes. Okay. Well, Rachel, thank you. Uh, thank you very much uh, for this introduction. And, and uh, the pronunciation of my name was brilliant. Thank you for that. Um, indeed, I'm 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 Dutch. I'm was born and um, raised in, in the Netherlands. Um, and interesting is that often when uh, such a question is asked, people start talking about their career and what they're doing and the importance of the firm. Thank you for the opportunity, first of all, for yourself and Solz and SkyBridge having me. Um, I'm currently in the past seven months working from home and that makes, makes, uh, well, you might say we look at a different way uh, to this world and your life. I don't know how you all experience that, but uh, seven months working from home is, is interesting and give you uh, food for thought. Uh, so what, one of the things I did, for instance, I picked up uh, playing golf again. Instead of uh, commuting for one and a half hours from where I live towards uh, my Amsterdam office, I had ample time to to try to improve my, my golf. So that's one interesting thing uh, I've learned. Uh, you can uh, shift uh, your... Uh, do your, your time to interesting things next to that I must admit it's it's uh, challenging to get used to have just one door between your professional work and your family office you might say you're working of, of living with your family and so often that's that's interesting to have together a, uh, a morning coffee but it's also challenging to uh, in the evening get away from your work and things like that so my life has changed. Um, as you rightfully mentioned, I studied at uh, University of Groningen, uh, did, some, uh, did uh, an MBA over there, uh, walked around in consultancy, uh, uh, different consultancy firms for, let's say, 10 15 years, doing uh, different things, marketing, strategy, MA. And I ended up uh, uh, one and a half decade ago, a bit more than that, in the in the investment uh, environment, the institutional invest, investment environment for a large Dutch pension funds, which gave me the opportunity uh, to to fill in different roles, have different uh, challenges, and uh, but also to to travel around uh, a lot, also driven by having offices in New York, in Hong Kong, and since not long ago in Beijing uh, as well. So that's that's a bit of my life. Uh, Play and, and I'm looking forward to uh, the coming season because I'm an enthusiastic uh, skier. But currently, it's pretty challenging to leave the Netherlands and uh, travel to Austria, for instance, where we often go, because of the the COVID uh, uh, measurements. It's it's uh, challenging to to plan your, your your ski holiday. So I do hope we mostly go. Uh, around Christmas, but currently the chances are low that uh, I will be skiing during Christmas. So that is an introduction, uh, Rachel.
0: No, that's a great overview. Thanks so much, Gert. And if you've just taken up playing golf, then we should probably have a game because I'm probably at your level. So it would be nice to play with someone that's ah, just as bad. Love as to me. do that. Um, <laughs> but you mentioned your you know, global mandate, and I want to dive into that a bit deeper. Later sure. on, but for the benefit of those in the audience that don't know much uh, about APG asset management, could you give an overview of the company as well?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Love to do that. Uh, well, APG asset management, let's start with a bit of history. At um, on the one hand, we are a very old firm uh, founded in 1922 when the Dutch government uh, started a pension fund. So in many years, in my view, there happened nothing until uh, 1996, when the pension fund was privatized. And then you suddenly see that uh, there is a broad mandate. Uh, You see a lot of new uh, asset classes being introduced, going global. And when I started uh, around uh, uh, somewhere 18 years ago, we already uh, were into New York, uh, North America, fixed income, real estate, going into private equity, hedge funds, commodities. So that was mess- that was a really interesting period of time. In nineteen, uh, sorry, in two thousand nine, uh, the Dutch uh, government introduced a new law, and the pen- Dutch pension funds has to be split into the pure pension fund and the executing asset manager. And that moment in time, APG was founded. And currently, ABG Asset Management is the asset manager for four Dutch pension funds, of which the uh, civil servant educational pension funds, ABP, is by far the largest. The second largest one is uh, the pension fund for the building construction industry. And I mentioned those two because they they are also, next to that they are our biggest clients, they're also our shareholders. So I live in a very interesting environment where my clients are also my Shareholders. I maybe touch upon that later. Currently, at least at the start of 2020, we had around 540 billion euros asset under management. In US dollars, that's around 635 billion, I think. So I mentioned that because that ranks us in the top 10 of pension funds globally. Um, And I think we are. characterized as a global leading um, long-term and responsible investor. And the responsible part I like to elaborate uh, certainly uh, later on. An important characteristic is that we have a a, a large staff, 900 people working for us. So we have a 75% of the assets we mentioned, we manage internally for the other 25% obviously we select and monitor external managers. Um, We are an active uh, asset manager in the sense that we don't believe in standard commercial benchmarks, but we do believe in being smarter than the market in the long term. Um, Again, I already mentioned 900 people working from the Netherlands, from New York, Hong Kong, Beijing. Uh, and we embrace uh, typically the responsible and sustainable investment beliefs uh, of our clients and ourselves. So that is, I think, in a nutshell, uh, what APG asset management is.
0: No, that's a great summary. Thanks, Gert. And you know, when we look at the sovereign wealth fund and pension fund world, by far, two of the largest themes or trends that we're seeing are the move to sustainable investing or the increase of sustainable investments, but also the rise of co-investments and club deals between other asset owners, is this something that you're seeing in Holland and with APG specifically?
1: Um, we don't only see it, but we, we indicate it, uh, I, I tend to say, uh, and then it's, it's not a new uh, tendency, you rightfully mentioned that as an important uh, tendency in the world of large institutional investors. Um, And I remember that I think already in 2018, or even earlier, uh, Texas uh, teachers um, uh, had in their strategy, uh, so the Texas Teacher Pension Fund had in their strategy already uh, partnering, asset owner partnering uh, included. And there's a beautiful Harvard Business case on that. If you, if you, uh, you like to to read more about that, but having said that, it's typically a tendency we already have had in especially investing in real assets for quite some time. But it also picks up in other, in other areas, and uh, also from an academic point of view, it's interesting to read some of the work of uh, S. B. Monk from the Stanford University, who has published quite a lot of. Uh, very interesting and relevant uh, research on networks in the financial sector. Having said that, for us, we focus on let's say five pillars, which uh, are part of our asset owner partnering uh, initiative. And if you look at uh, our strategy, this asset owner partnering is, is typically uh, well needed for for uh, as part of our strategy. The first pillar of that is, is boosting returns. Uh, typically, if you look at the future, uh, compared to, to what we could, could uh, return in the past decade, it is far more challenging to find the same, same level of return. So um, to find access to attractive, yet difficult to impl- implement long-term uh, investments, uh, it's partnering really is is uh, an, uh, well, uh, a very good option. And I think it's a uh, interesting example of that is that we collaborate and it's public information. Uh, we collaborate intensely in the past year with a South Korean fund NPS. We already did two deals together, one toll road in Portugal, student housing, real estate in, in Australia. And those are typical uh, examples of two large uh, asset owners collaborating. Uh, um, and this is an example where we, you talk about two pension funds uh, investors, but you see that we collaborate with several wealth funds. Uh, a good example is that we already for a long time uh, together with uh, GIC from Singapore uh, invest together. That's public information as well. Uh, But what's new is in the past, let's say two to to three years, we talk also with family offices, something I wouldn't have done a decade ago. So everywhere where you see long-term and responsible investors and investment ambitions, large institutional investors find each other. So the first reason to do that is obviously uh, uh, boosting returns. The second important reason to uh, partner with other asset owners is uh, lowering costs. So try to find cost effectiveness in direct investment in the, for instance, in real asset, but also cost-efficient uh, deal sourcing or processing. Uh, and even uh, negotiating fees, uh, you might see as part of the, the agenda of the cost reduction part of asset owner partnering. Then the uh, third uh, important driver for this tendency of asset owner partnering is to have more impact, more responsible investment impact. So more uh, control over investments, more uh, uh, increasingly applying all aspects of responsible investing. And let me give you two examples. Uh, We were one of the founding members of a benchmark called GRESB, G E G R E S B, That stands for Global, real estate sustainable benchmark. And that is currently a benchmark used by around 180 uh, asset managers and investors to uh, monitor and report on their real estate investments. And it's typically geared towards uh, reducing energy uh, usage, reducing water usage, uh, things like that. Uh, and we, uh, as a next step, we uh, also try to develop a, a, a look-alike benchmark for infrastructure, which is which is a bit more challenging. And another example I like to mention to you is uh, a very recent initiative, which we uh, took together with another Dutch pension fund investor called PDGM, but also with a Australian pension fund, Australian Super, and the Canadians, British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Which is an initiative for a, a what we call AOP SDI, a platform where we can report, uh, well, let's say source data and report on listed companies with regard to their sustainable development uh, goals and uh, uh, results, uh, if, for instance, in, in carbon reduction. That's a new example. So, that is typically something we need uh, the and partnering with large uh, global investors to stand set standards in that area. Uh, a f- a fourth uh, reason, you might say driver, for cooperation with other large uh, long-term investors is obviously to share ideas on innovation. We share our ideas with some of the uh, large uh, investors, <coughs> sorry, um, to see whether or not we can jointly uh, initiate innovative uh, uh, pilots. We do that together, together with uh, uh, buy-side uh, parties, but also with sell-side uh, commercial parties like GP Morgan. We did an artificial intelligence uh, pilot with regard to sentiment recognition in the publications of. Uh, central banks, so basically we don't have enough budget to do it ourselves, but if you share your budget, you can do far more uh, innovative work than uh, when you do it alone, and if you allow me the last, uh, fifth and last driver for uh, asset owner partnering for us is uh, uh, human talent, Uh, what we try to do is uh, to to offer let's say our professionals which somewhere between mid 30s and mid 40s to uh, pick up some experience abroad with one of our uh, peers and there is uh, there's typically uh, the the period in in most careers where you're not yet at the highest management level uh, you have had your your university follow-up post academic Experience and you're looking for something new. So, being able to offer uh, young professionals in that age uh, category to have one year in Japan or in Korea or in China or in North America uh, that that is a, a typically a benefit as a, well becoming a, a attractive uh, employer. So, that that is more or less the the. the the, the, the scene behind our ambition to uh, implement an asset auto partnering program.
0: No, I think that all those, you know, those five points obviously really make sense. I'd want to pick up on the third one that you spoke about and go a bit deeper into the impact side. And, you know, ESG has become such a highly used or some would say overused acronym and can take on many different forms. Can you maybe just outline how APG actually views sustainable investing? And also I'd like to, you know, you mentioned that your clients are also your shareholders and maybe how that plays into the equation there as well.
1: Yeah. Well, well, to pick up the last part, uh, yes, we are obviously very close with our clients because they are client and shareholders. So, if you talk about target setting uh, and, and investment beliefs, it's always very dear. Um, you might even say that it's an iterative process where we advise our client, and the client comes back. And so that that works. So, if you look at our investment beliefs, uh, one important investment belief, obviously, is that we truly believe, and there is also sufficient academic research for that, that you can uh, invest in a sustainable and responsible way and keep uh, uh, sound returns. Uh, so you can maximize returns and be sustainable and responsible at the same time. That's a strong belief. Uh, and again, we have there is There is academic, uh, in the meantime, we have academic uh, research sufficiently to underpin that belief. So if you try to translate that belief into... Uh, uh, policy and practice. you might say we have uh, and it differs a bit to be honest on the e environment, the yes, the social and the governance part. but we have let's say f- let's say five parts uh, of our policy which uh, well give give content to that belief and first of all we, we have a good governance policy I like to elaborate on a little. We talk about exclusion, about inclusion, and that's the most interesting part I'd like to share with you more, elaborate. Sustainable development investments and carbon footprint uh, or climate as a theme. Um, what's important for us is that we typically start with the targets of our clients. Um, our client has very clear, uh, given us uh, very clear targets. They already did that for the period in time 2016, 2020. Uh, so basically your question is, is, on a, is very well timed because we start with a new set of targets for 2025. And uh, the targets for 2025 is uh, in the listed equity environment, a 40% carbon footprint reduction in the listed equities. And that's the benchmark is, by the way, 2015. So that is, that's the baseline, but still challenging. Number two, uh, another example uh, of uh, targets, of echt, or really a quantitative target, is that we have to invest 50 million euros in clean, affordable energy. Which, by the way, is directly related to one of the uh, sustainable development goals from the Paris Agreements uh, for the specialists at uh, sustainable development goal number seven, clean and affordable energy. We have to reach that target by 2025. Uh, then an interesting uh, uh, one might be um, the phase out from coal and tar sands from our portfolio, also by 2025 or earlier. And then we have to uh, find the uh, portfolio fully aligned with the Paris Agreement by 2030 and more challenging. And I'm not sure whether or not I will be still uh, in APG Asset Management, a net zero emission portfolio by 2050. So those those uh, five very clear quantitative targets drive our policy and investment decision-making. And obviously we, we can't do that without clients having those uh, type of ambitions. Um, Having said that, um, it's obviously very challenging to to implement that, Uh, but but that's what we do. And and that implies that in each and every investment decision we make, uh, and I gave some examples in the listed equity but the same goes for for real assets, Um, that we uh, make our decision from uh, four angles obviously from a return angle, obviously from a risk angle, cost angle, but certainly also from the ESG angle. And they all have the same weight for uh, a decision to be made, yes or no to a investment uh, proposition. So that's the way uh, we we, uh, uh, translate belief towards targets, towards implementation.
0: That first one that you mentioned, Gert, the 40% carbon reduction, do you apply that on a global basis across listed equities or how does that work? Yeah,
1: yes, Uh, it's very clear that at the end it's for the global portfolio. Uh, And it's a very, very uh, interesting uh, topic you now bring up because, for instance, when I mentioned there is a difference in pace between the E, the S, and the G. When I take governance, um, in Europe, it's, it is and, and in the Anglo-Saxon world, you might say, but certainly in Europe, we have an a, um, increasingly uh, intensive dialogue with the boards of uh, the corporates, uh, the listed corporates in which we invest to steer them towards a, a more ESG, if necessary, a more ESG-like uh, policy. Um, we experience, so we have in Europe, for instance, a, a, a focus Europe portfolio, equity portfolio, with a, an increasingly um, limited number of, of companies, because it's, it's very labor intensive to have all those dialogues. So the, one of the effects you see is that the number of uh, companies you invest in uh, decreases, uh, but the time invested uh, increases. In China, we're now implementing a China uh, focused fund. Uh, there goes the same a limited number, but uh, you see there that at the E and Environment and Social it, it works, but governance is quite a new topic for the boards of some of the Chinese li- lim- uh, listed companies. So there we you have to take more time before you are successful in implementing your
0: policy. Mm. And we've had a question coming in from the audience. It's similar to a question I was going to ask, but they've actually worded it much better. So I'm going to select their version. They've said, why do you think it's the, often the Dutch and the Scandinavian pension funds leading the way in ESG and impact investing? Do you think it's a a socially driven viewpoint or is it also tied to the political stance?
1: Well, that, that's indeed a very good question, and to be my my easy answer would be I, I don't know. But but when I think about it, and often we are challenged to think about it because our Canadian peers uh, often talk to us and, and call us the, the enlightened Europeans. They are obviously very proud, but we also you can also start thinking about why the heck is, is that uh, they are doing that. When you talk about the Scandinavian, when it, one of my dear peers, is a Norwegian oil fund. So uh, NBIM, uh, Norges Bank Investment Management. And that is typically a, a uh, fund where there is a, a strong political connection uh, historically. And I can imagine that you see there more political influence than in some of the other uh, pension funds. For the Netherlands, um, I must say, that there, is not that there is not a strong or any, if you like, political connection. So then you can come to uh, a discussion about uh, the Anglo-Saxon world and the Rhineland model. So the Anglo-Saxon model and the Rhineland model. And when I was at the university in a town of which the name you pronounce brilliantly, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was educated with a strong Shareholder focus. When I look in my my uh, library, I find my all the old books on, on, on shareholder value, shareholder value, shareholder value. Still, the Netherlands is, is is at the brink of the Rhineland the Rhineland model. So I think we picked up earlier from an academic, maybe for the societal and maybe even for the political angle, some flavor of the movement early from stakeholder, from shareholder towards stakeholder movement and modeling and thinking, and if I look at the uh, board members of my largest clients, so being the Dutch pension funds, they want to be part of the Dutch society, they want uh, want us to focus on our role in society. So yes, that's, that's a, maybe a bit of a long answer, but, but I do think that I- here in Europe, there might be a, uh, a bit earlier influence of societal or if you like stakeholder thinking than it might be in other parts of, uh, of, of the globe. And um, what's interesting for me is uh, that we, had, we also here, we have had a, a fierce discussion in, in some years ago Uh, with regard to the tension between return focus, and uh, which is part of your fiduciary duty, uh, or which which is rooted in in the, the prudent person rule, and whether or not you could broaden your scope towards ESG, so sustainable and responsible investing. And at the moment that there is sufficient academic research and prove that you can do both. So be a responsible and sustainable investor without losing return. Then that's that's the solution. That's the way forward. And we 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 really had some enlightened uh, CEOs and leaders here in Western Europe who brought us on that that road. And I see the same, by the way, in some of the, the same thinking in some of the US-based uh, large pension funds uh, in terms of, of in the, 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 Cal- the Californians, the CalPERS, uh, et cetera, who do uh, pretty much the same thinking as, as we do. So it's not anymore uh, the, the enlightened Europeans, I must say. So I, I'm not sure whether or not I answered the question uh, right, but, but that's, that's some of my thoughts about it.
0: No, I think that's very explanatory. And, you know, if you do look at the academic research, which shows that sustainable investing actually leads to greater returns, you're, you're doing a fiduciary disservice by not investing sustainably, aren't you? You can almost flip that around. Uh, you do mention U.S. pension funds, and we've had a, another question coming in from the audience about that, so I'll address it and then dive a bit deeper into asset classes, but Given that you know there are many state uh, employee pension funds in the U.S. that have this large funding gap, um, you know some of them are very heavily underfunded. What do you think can be done here, and what would be your advice or guidance to some of these states that are facing large uh, funding gap issues?
1: Yeah, well, it's a, I think it's it's an important question, but at the same time. Pretty difficult for me to, to answer in the sense that I'm curious about um, the the reasons behind the gap. Um, basically, uh, if you um, can can um, see what what options what which, which instruments a pension fund board has, it, it's it's limited. You can say we can raise the pension premium in, we can lower the pension premium out. We can take more risk in terms of uh, investing, but those are basically the limited uh, instruments, uh, the boards of of pension funds have. Um, Maybe I can illustrate it by the following. Uh, We did some research uh, based on on, uh, um, the data our clients uh, gave us, that uh, which gives insight in which uh, part, of, of the premiums paid out were raised by, by our returns. So if I make it uh, uh, more visible, if you take 100 euro, or for you maybe 100 US dollar, but, but for me 100 euro, the question was, from each 100 euro paid out today to a retired fireman or a retired teacher, which part, uh, is is brought up by APG's management. So by what are the investment returns? And the answer to that question is, is, is well, I think very interesting. That's 75 euro. So 75% of the premiums paid out are based on investment income. Uh, by the way, uh, eight euro is the contribution on average of the employee 18 euro is the contribution of the employer, and again 75 is the work we have to do. And I'm not sure whether or not it is the answer, but those are the limited options a pension fund board member has to influence the the gap. So that's part of let's say part one of the answer. Part two is there is now a gap. So Uh, in a low interest environment, uh, you have to seek for more risky uh, uh, investment opportunities to get a acceptable uh, return for the coming years, for the coming decades. So one move forward, one way out is to find controlled, but still more risky and more return giving assets, which is a dangerous route, but if you don't go that route, it will be extremely difficult to, to bridge gap. Obviously, the other one is to, to, well, to cut the pension premiums paid out, which is not favorable for society. It's, well, in many senses, it's not uh, uh, a good way to move forward. And obviously the other one is to, to raise the pension premium paid at this moment by the employees. And what we also did is currently in, with some of the pension funds in the Netherlands, uh, the, the participants already pay uh, one day per week of their salary in the pension pot. So around 20%. So that's extremely high, extremely high. So in the Netherlands it's, it's for some of the pension funds extremely difficult to use that instrument to uh, to keep uh, the coverage ratio uh, at, at a sound level.
0: Yeah, and I think, that well, if you suddenly change the amount that you pay out, as you said, it has a whole lot of social implications and it really should be the, yeah, the last
1: is, um, what we have here in the Netherlands and, and I know you, you know our model we have the three pillar model where the first pillar obviously is, is that somebody who is working and living in the Netherlands becomes 67 currently uh, gets a state pension. Uh, we, we don't interfere with that. Then the second pillar is typically the uh, our market segment where uh, somebody who is uh, working in the Netherlands, um, on a mandatory basis becomes participant of a pension fund, an industry pension fund. And then uh, when he or she becomes 67, that is paid out as well. And the third pillar obviously obviously is that uh, you can arrange your individual pension scheme. Uh, that's a market segment where mostly here, the insurance companies are active.
0: And did you know, just a quick fact for you, Gert, that in Bahrain you can retire at age 49 after 15 years service. So as you can imagine, there's quite a difference in the the pension model there. Um, We've had a whole host of other audience questions coming in. One is, I know you spoke about the public equities and how you look at that, but there's a question that's come in. It's got a few parts to it. Firstly is how are your policies implemented outside of public equities? So for example, in the private equity and venture capital space. And then the second part, Do you invest across the board or you prefer early stage innovation, you know, versus much late stage, or do you prefer any sectors or industries as long as they meet those those five pillars that you spoke about previously?
1: Yeah, Let me first take uh, uh, the last one. Typically pension funds, uh, we love uh, long-term predictable cash flows. That's because we have to deal with the liability of our clients. So, there are client liabilities, and so the, the cash flow out is pretty predictable. And so, we love long term predictable cash flows, preferably with a bit of in, uh, inflation uh, compensation in it. So, that's why we invest in, in toll roads. Uh, that's why we invest in, in uh, some of the energy uh, related uh, um, industries. Having said that, uh, that was in the old, good old days because those markets have become very, very competitive. So to be positioned ideally for those long-term uh, cash flows, so for the, what we call the fields, we've moved towards greenfields and we have already some mandates from our clients where we can fully uh, invest uh, in, in venture capital, Early uh, stage, um, but still in terms of, of size, uh, it's not uh, not that large. So yes, we are moving towards earlier stage in terms of fine, uh, investing, but at the end, we still love our long-term and predictable, let's say, brownfield cash flows. So yes, we move to greenfield. Another important thing is not only in investing, but also in, you might say, uh, behavior or uh, governance. What we did, uh, what we not did, uh, let's say a decade ago, was to interfere with project developers, initiators, innovators. And typically in the, the past years, we moved towards also in the, what you might say, the life cycle value chain in early stage, where we, together with entrepreneurs, Develop um, uh, their projects, and I, if you allow me, uh, two two examples. One is uh, uh, if you, I would, uh, Rachel, I would, would advise you when you go whenever you come in London again, go visit the Westfield Shopping Mall. That's typically it is quite near the Olympic Stadium. It's a beautiful upmarket uh, shopping mall, and we already sat at the table together with the project developer when there were still the the old industry buildings. So that was a very early stage. The same goes for a hotel chain, which started in the Netherlands, by the way, it's called Citizen M. It's a very easy to go hotel chain um, and and, the same goes there. We stepped in in a very early stage there. And that are two illustrations of um, actions we wouldn't have done 15 years ago, 10 years ago maybe, but we are now, trying to position us as a, uh, uh, well, investor for the long-term, but to be uh, to make that long-term interesting, we step in early. So that, that's part one of the answer. The other question was about, yes, you can um, implement your sustainable, responsible investing policy in listed equities, but how do you deal with, uh, for instance, private equity uh, or venture capital. We have a pretty large uh, private equity portfolio, around 20 billion euros, and uh, most of them, uh, or maybe all of them, are funds, are co-investments, secondaries. So we always have to deal with private equity, with GPs, with general partners, and we have to convince them that we, we really love them, but they need to implement our ideas on sustainable and responsible investing. And that's, that's challenging. Uh, so the, the question is, is absolutely spot on because that's a challenging part, especially in an era where there is so much money available for real assets, for private equity, for venture capital. So at on the one hand, you want to be uh, an LP in the top quartile GP league, And on the other hand, you want to negotiate uh, that the private equity firms start implementing or at least living up to your sustainable and responsible investing uh, uh, principles. The good news is many of the large private equity and and top quartile private equity firms have adopted uh, in the meantime, similar um, responsible investing policies using more or less uh, the same uh, responsible investing criteria. Uh, But I think the the truth is it was uh, and still is challenging to get the right level of transparency, the right level of of, uh, 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 attention for for those aspects. So uh, the honest answer is yes, uh, some of the asset classes are easier than the others, and private equity is not always easy to, to get your uh, uh, ambitions in terms of sustainability and responsible investing implemented. But it's, it, 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 you need to, uh, to have a permanent dialogue with those uh, private equity firms. And, and one step further, I know that, that in some uh, cases, private equity firms said, no, thank you. We don't want your money. Because it's too challenging, etc. So yes, that's that's a really a challenge. Good question.
0: Yeah, and I guess with with your size, you know, six hundred and thirty-five billion, having to deploy so much capital, you're already shrinking your investable universe a little bit there, as well. It's a lot of money to put to work. We've we've only got time. We are actually over time. But I'm going to ask one more question from Sebastian. Uh, Javadi and thank you Sebastian because he's a great salt talk supporter but he said how do you balance the need to invest in companies that are responsible on the carbon side versus com- companies that aren't carbon responsible but they're critical to the functioning of our economy and the example that he gives is you know, flying in planes for instance is not a carbon friendly activity but critical for the functioning of our global economy or maybe not so much in the last few months, from a passenger perspective, yeah. but how do you sort of balance out that tension between, you
1: know, necessity for um, the economy? Yeah, but Sebastian, great question, and and typically a uh, uh, great al- illustration of one of the dilemmas you encounter when you have an ambitious, uh, responsible, and sustainable investing uh, investment policy and try to implement it. You are typically um, and, 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 well, typically, well, get, 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 get. Re- I see my colleagues wrestling with those type of, of dilemmas. And the way out, obviously, is to to start and maintain dialogue with the boards of those companies, and try in time to move them towards uh, uh, a, a situation where where they fit into your to your policy. maybe I don't know whether or not we have much time, uh, Rachel, but just just let me briefly um, uh, explain our inclusion policy. We only um, invest in in companies after a few steps, and the first step is to assess whether or not they are uh, a front runner or a laggard in, in terms of sustainable and development entrepreneurship. If they are uh, they are in the, in the front line, then you look at the return options, etc. and then it comes into the uh, portfolio. If they are a and those are the most interesting, and that applies most on Sebastian's question, I guess, but they are laggard, you have two options. If you see that there is an interesting return perspective, you might say, okay, they are possibly, they are potentially part of the portfolio, but we have to start a dialogue, if the return perspective is negative, they typically are not in your portfolio. So there you see the mechanism we, we apply, but that that is a bit of a technocratic answer on a very, very deep dilemma we encounter every now and then. So Sebastian, thank you very much for the question. It's, it's, it's spot on.
0: No, I think that's, that's a great answer. And if it's a case of the laggards and that's an opportunity for you as well, isn't it, as long as the willingness, as you say, is there from the actual company to improve. Uh, I do just want to ask, I know I said it was the last question, but I do just want to ask um, one last question. I had about a dozen questions that we didn't get to, and we didn't talk about the election, so I'm happy about that too. But how do you see the post-crisis world and the role of the responsible institutional investor within that?
1: uh well uh, given that that's uh that is a beautiful last question in which we can i can well spend an hour uh, and, but you you want me to give a brief answer i still like to have two or three perspectives number one is uh, from the ge- geographical uh point of view uh we guess that um, if you look at the three large economic blocks starting with us it might be the case that the US comes out of the corona crisis uh, less dominant, partly because uh, there's a division between the states, which is very, very visible and became even more visible, I guess, during co- uh, the COVID crisis, corona crisis. And there is a very strong market and individual orientation. So that might be the background of, of the US being a less dominant. You have to see that in relation to the second economic block, China. And although China might come out a bit stronger, uh, typically uh, they cannot o- take over the leading role globally. The country is uh, not sufficiently trusted yet in a global stage. Uh, and there is evidence sufficiently for that. And then Europe, my, my own environment. Um, what I see is that Europe is populist divided. And we have to, have to get our act together in decision-making before the Euro- European Union can become a, a relevant, really relevant uh, uh, part on, on, the, on the global stage. And that is not the case yet. Although I must say that uh, recently we had uh, a European Green Bond issue, which um, forced the different countries to work together. And that, that's a very interesting signal, I would say. So that's perspective number one. If you allow me a second one, that's a technology. Because I we do think that the crisis, the COVID crisis, might uh, reinforce technology, technological trends in which uh, you can see that US and China have far more stronger technology sectors than Europe. Let me illustrate that with the one third of the engineers globally live in China. So that, that, that is a potential uh, source for innovation, which is great. Then you might say that uh, some of the industries like pharmacy and biotech uh, continue will continue to grow, maybe boost even. Mass entertainment, we think might uh, take a hit over digital individual entertainment, uh, and one other thing, obviously, is that the tourist industry might come out quite differently than, uh, than when we started uh, the investment. And my last three remarks uh, on the COVID crisis is one uh, what we see is that not necessarily the US dollar will stay the, re- the only reserve currency. Um, in the midterm or long term, you might even say it's not inconceivable that interest rates uh, and inflation will take a sh- different path and start to rise sharply. And one other consideration might be that perhaps there will be a turnaround in the popularity of illiquid investments and listed markets being more transparent and being more digital might. Be uh, reassessed and being for large institutional investors becoming more relevant and uh, interesting. Well, let's keep it there.
0: Thank you so much, for summarizing what could have been an hour answer in about three and a half minutes. That was very impressive. And we, we are slightly over time, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for your really thoughtful and in depth answers and providing such a great window into. APG asset management and yourself as well. So thank you very much.
1: Good. Well, thank you, Rachel. Always great to have a dialogue with you. Thanks.